Welcome to this BJC podcast and I'm taking the opportunity to speak to Aaron Baggish and Aaron's the medical director of the Boston Marathon. He's affiliated with Harvard Medical School and he is going to talk to us about sports cardiology in that field. We've heard from John Dresner before. It's a big theme issue for BJCM and it's great to elaborate on some of these points with Aaron. Aaron, thanks for joining the podcast. Very nice to be with you. We're going to try and cover four topics as we've discussed. The first one is the issue of screening elite athletes and caring for them versus trying to provide that sort of service to a population. There are challenges. What are your thoughts? Well, I think it's worth just um, starting the discussion with a, with a brief overview of screening in general. Why do we screen? We screen because when athletes drop dead on the pitch from a non-traumatic cause, it's almost always due to an underlying heart problem. And the rationale for screening is that if we can find these problems before the athlete has their event and take steps either to restrict them appropriately or treat them medically, that we can minimize the risk of having a catastrophe. And so quite logically, screening makes sense. Now, not all would agree that screening is in our best interest, but I think um, there's been enough of a consensus over the last several decades such that we all would favor doing some screening versus no screening at all. Um, where it becomes challenging is what constitutes the best screening program, and there's obviously, as you know, quite quite a bit of debate still around that. Speaking specifically about elite athletes, um, because of the financial, public relations, uh, clinical implications of having a bad event in a screened athlete, um, typically these individuals will, will get more than the basic recommendation of a history and physical and even just the addition of an electrocardiogram. They will often be subjected to exercise stress testing and in some cases non-invasive imaging. And I think um, as long as that's done in the right hands and people understand what to do with the results, that really does represent the best standard of care for elite competitors. And so what about people who can't afford a lot? Well, it's a, this, is, this is one of the major problems with the concept of mandatory mass screening in general. Is there, there are situations where um, individuals can't afford what we as physicians recommend for them. I think among elite competitors, for the most part, they're either affiliated with some team or some organization um, that can help defray the cost of this. But in situations where they have no resources, then one has to ask the question, should they be playing sport without that screening? How do you answer that? Uh, I think that everyone should undergo some form of screening and at the very least that it should involve a, a detailed medical history and physical examination by a, a physician that understands what the questions really mean and what to do with the findings and the value added of an ECG is certainly in my mind something that's substantial so I think that represents the bare minimum and those are really very um, low-cost items. But ECG wasn't recommended by the American Heart Association several years ago. What's the current status? Um, we're about to see a, a revision of that uh, document, which will essentially stay the same. Uh, the ACC and the AHA have largely followed uh, a tract which addresses the lowest common denominator, uh, meaning what can we do for everyone. And there the thought is that we just in the United States don't have the resources to implement ECG screening in a, in a way that would constitute best practice. The problem is that doing ECG screening well requires physicians that understand how to interpret the ECGs and the resources to deal with both the false positives and the false negatives. So that's the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association, and that's a logical flow into this issue of interpreting ECGs. Yes. So tell us what the challenges are. Well, the major challenge is that the electrocardiogram uh, in an athlete almost always differs from that which you would see in a sedentary individual. And a majority of the, the patterns that we find in the ECGs of athletes represent physiologic adaptation. These are simply 
benign adaptive things that happen to athletes during the course of their training and competition, and these represent normal physiology. But to the uninformed eye or to the individual clinician who's not used to seeing athletic ECGs, these may very well bring up questions of pathology. So ECG interpretation in athletes requires people that work with athletes and see ECGs in athletes with some degree of uh, frequency. And so tell us about the Seattle criteria meeting. So um, there have been several criteria presented um, going back first to 2005 uh, from the European Society of Cardiology uh, with an update in 2010. Um, these criteria have been developed to help clinicians understand that just as I was alluding to, that there are things that we see on the athlete ECG that um, are normal for those people. Um, the Seattle criteria was convened with the idea of really trying to, again, dissect the different things that we see on the athlete ECG and to evaluate them each individually to determine whether or not we could make improvements in the criteria that were a function of better specificity. And a group of us convened um, several years ago and sat down and looked over this in detail and came out with a document that we thought represented the, um, the ideal criteria to apply to, to young athletes. And the goal was really to empower clinicians all over the world, even those that don't have access to major teaching institutions or a large group of athletes, to learn in a, in a systematic way what they should expect to see and what they should not expect to see when they're dealing with healthy people. And there are a couple of highlights in a couple of specific patterns that may have been new or that people should pay attention to? Yeah, I think um, the 2010 European criteria did a nice job dividing ECG patterns into those that were benign training-related patterns into those that were suggestive of underlying disease. And what we tried to do in, with the Seattle group was really to look at those two criteria, those two lists, and see if we thought we should reclassify any of those. And several of the things that we identified were reclassified. For example, right bundle branch block, which is a pattern that's not uncommon among athletes, was something that was proposed by the Europeans in 2010 as being a marker of pathology. Well, since that time, we've actually done some, some pretty good research to show that not only is the right bundle branch block common in athletes, but it's a marker of right ventricular adaptation, which comes with endurance training. So we were able to use that type of thought process to make a number of reclassifications, which I think add to the strength of the Seattle criteria. And Alice can find that in BJSM if they Google Seattle criteria. Yes, they're, they're all available in uh, BJSM, and it's been, it's been nice to see how much interest they've generated. And there was a special issue with a bunch of other useful articles. And then there's also a free BMJ learning module that people can sign into. Um, so that's with the BMJ, and they just go to BMJ Learning, and uh, it takes 30 seconds to sign in. And then there's a training module that John Dresner and you and your colleagues really provide the foundation for. Yeah. Um, sponsored by American Medical Society for Sports Medicine and FIFA, among others. Yeah, I, 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 just to put in a plug for that training module, the whole um, underlying foundation for the Seattle group was really not to talk about whether we should be screening with ECGs or not, but to recognize that ECG interpretation is an important part of taking care of athletes. Some use it in screening, but more importantly it's used in the evaluation of the symptomatic athlete. And the goal was really to develop a teaching platform whereby clinicians all over the world would have access to the dialogue that we had during our meetings there and the criteria that came out from it to empower people to do this at a, at a high level. And because the sponsorship from AMSSM and FIFA and uh, BMJ really that has become free for the world, which is important. Absolutely. So let's talk about defibrillators. Um, you say it's the second most important thing in 
predicting recovery after sudden cardiac arrest? So yeah, so um, there's been a number of a number of good studies that have shown when someone drops dead during an athletic event, there are two absolutely essential parts of a successful resuscitation. The first is the initiation of rapid hands-only CPR. Uh, an individual who has a cardiac arrest will not survive or will not survive without neurologic deficit if CPR isn't performed rapidly and effectively. So that's the first step in the chain. The second is rapid access to defibrillation. Um, for the most part, cardiac arrests have as an underlying heart rhythm either ventricular fibrillation or ventricular tachycardia. And the single most effective therapy for those two heart rhythms is electrical defibrillation. And the time with which electrical defibrillation is applied dictates the likelihood of success. So what does this all mean? It means that when individuals who are athletes gather for competition or for training in groups, that there should always be two things. There should be an, a group of people there that know CPR and there should be a defibrillator on site that's accessible and that people there understand how to use. That is simply our, will be our most effective way of preventing sudden death. And how did you implement this in the Boston Marathon? So it's an interesting story. Um, we spent a decade studying sudden death during long distance running and um, published the information several years ago in the New England Journal. And one of the, one of the key findings from, the, from that work, which was called the RACER study, is that the vast majority of cardiac arrest on marathon courses occur either within sight of the start or within sight of the finish. Right. A lot of a lot of the events that we w that we studied, more than ninety percent of them really occurred within the last quarter mile of the race. Uh, there's certainly some interesting speculation about why that might be the case. I think for the most part, it's explained by individuals that have some threshold above which they push and develop a, a malignant arrhythmia. But the the, the take home lesson or the, the clinical application of that finding was that we need to concentrate defibrillators in the last several miles of our race. And that's something that we've done. And um, after making some adjustments, we were fortunate enough to have a cardiac arrest that was successfully resuscitated literally within the last mile of our race. And the reason the resuscitation was successful is that bystander CPR was initiated immediately and a defibrillator which had been pre-positioned was applied within a minute or two of the arrest. So exciting translation from the science to the clinical application. Thanks a ton Aaron, thanks for your time today and giving those valuable tips for BJSM listeners. All the best. My pleasure, great to be with you.